Dr. John Morgan, H. Morgan. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. So you're a pastor who then left to start a nonprofit? I am. I pastored for uh, 30 years and then um, felt like the next phase of my life was the kind of work that we're doing now. So had a great run. My my father was a pastor, so I knew that life uh, growing up in it and then had that season of my life of pastoring. Uh, the last church I pastored, pastored for 24 years in Farmington, New Mexico. Ever been there? No. It's right below Durango, Colorado and uh, beautiful country. Anyway, we had a great time there, great church, uh, great 24-year run, and uh, then we did a pastoral succession, found our next pastor, and I had been working in this for several years knowing that this is where it was going and that's where God was leading me, and then officially uh, passed off the church in 2018 and went to this full-time. So I've uh, been doing this for about 15 years, but full-time in it now a couple of years. Okay, and what exactly do y'all do? Well, um, what we do... Every time I say this, every time it comes out of my mouth, I think to myself, who are you kidding? Are, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Uh, we're, we're solving poverty. Uh, I mean, we're not going to solve all of world poverty. That's kind of, that would be an absurd statement. But we're solving a lot of poverty in the places where we are working. And so we solve poverty through empowerment. By empowerment, we mean we teach the poor the knowledge and the skills that are the pathway out of poverty. And um, so our work takes us to the places around the world where poverty is the worst. So we we do training in uh, India, in Africa. Uh, we work in Haiti. Uh, right now, the political situation in Haiti is nuts. So I haven't been able to get in there for a, a while. But we have a, a group of people that we're working with there. I just got back from Guatemala uh, last week. We are now breaking into Latin America and the Spanish-speaking world. Um, this morning, I was up on a Zoom at 6 a.m. with a team from the Philippines, and uh, they're beginning to implement our teaching and our programs there. And um, so, yeah, that's what we do. And how did when did this start, and kind of what's the origin story of it? Uh, I'll say it quickly, but I'm going to start pretty young. I mean, the weird thing about it is that, is that I poverty has been one of those things that has just messed me up all my life. I mean, when I'm around it, it messes me up. I, I act like I'm a pretty uh, strong and in control person, but that is one of the things that just always gotten to me. I grew up in El Paso, Texas in the sixties. That was my childhood in the sixties. And in the sixties, when you would cross the border from El Paso to Juarez, Mexico, as soon as you get off the main streets, I mean, you would get into very third world conditions, a lot of poverty. And so as a kid, uh, I would go with my family across the border. They, we would take friends that would be visiting in the area to go show them what was going on in the country next door. And, man, I can remember looking out the car window at these poor crippled kids that are on the street corners begging flies all over them, and they're holding out their hand in this oppressive heat, horrible conditions. And there I am in an air-conditioned car, and I can't wait to cross the border and get back to my you know middle-class neighborhood. Uh, I could just... I, I would go to bed at night and just think, oh, my gosh, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. What, what in the world can you do? I just felt like there's nothing you could do. So fast forward that through my life doing pastoral ministry. I uh, had the opportunity to travel around the world quite a bit to do missions work. And um, kind, of my, kind of my three areas of expertise and, and research over the course of my life have been Christian theology for ministry stuff, organizational leadership. That's what my doctorate is in. And economics, kind of a weird combo, but that's my 
that's my thing, you know. So I think God makes us all. I call I I'll call all my friend freaks, and I call myself a freak because we all. When you really drill down, what makes you unique? You're a little bit of a freak, you know. And so I'm a little <laughs> bit of a freak in that way. So when I would be going around the world and uh, end up doing training in these places, I was always in high poverty areas. Always the churches, the people I was working with, always seeing stories of people dying young, people losing their children, all the all the misery issues that go along with poverty, and uh, it would just bother me, bother me. My first attempt to do something about it was the same method that 99% of people use when they first try to help. And that is charity. That was to give them as much free stuff as I could here, take some shoes here, have clothes here. (laughs) Here's medicine here. Here's food. Here's money. We'll build you a building. We'll build you a school. We'll all these things that are the, the handout methodology, the charity methodology through my experience, through research, realize there are proper times for charity but charity does not solve poverty. In fact, in a lot of cases, when charity is overused, it makes it worse. Uh, case in point is the nation of Haiti. The charity industry, and I mean it is an industry, is a massive deal that's taking money into Haiti. Haiti is still uh, <laughs> uh, one of the most dysfunctional things in the world. It has not you could take all the money, you could take the billions of dollars that have been poured into Haiti and just divide it up among all the people. And they could all just have a middle-class life. But that's not how it works. It gets siphoned off into a ton of corruption. And it creates a spirit in the people where after that happens for several generations, they just become so passive that rather than doing what it takes to solve their poverty and make a better society, they're just waiting for the next plane load of charity workers and nonprofit workers and Unfortunately, Christian ministries and ministers showing up, and they're just, who's going to bring us the next round of food? Who's going to bring us the next round of clothes? Who's going to bring us this? Who's going to bring us that? <laughs> uh, so um, my friend went to Haiti and tells a story. He's like, yeah, we brought this guy to, brought this guy to, to Christ, and it was amazing. And then the next day we found out that he comes to know Christ with every group that comes. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. okay. So it's, that's, that's kind of like a, that's kind of like a spiritual charity right there. You know, he, he's working, the, he's working the system, baby. He's working the system. And, he, um, he knows how it works. And I just thought that was like hilarious. Cause he was like so full of joy and happy. And then like the next day somebody informed him and he was like, Oh, we got played. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so I, by research, by watching what is actually working the best in the world, by the principles of economics, I'm a student of history, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, poverty has been s- s- literally at, at the individual level and at the family level, poverty has been solved millions and millions of times over the course of history. In fact, it's true of my family, but I bet if you were to go back far enough in your family tree, you would find a, a generation that lived in poverty. Somehow, between then and now, the poverty got solved. And it essentially gets solved the same way every time. So so we began drilling into those principles. We began training. And what we found is the training was effective. It started working. It started taking hold with the people that we were working with. And um, my, my, my number one fulfilling experience is when I go back a few years later and I see what they've done with their life in applying what we teach. The second favorite time is when we first go in 
and we first explain it to them, man, they just light up. They light up, and a common response is, how come we've never heard this? How come nobody has ever taught us this? And, and a real sense of excitement and hope that, man, we feel like we know the pathway now. It's not, it's not a quick fix. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes discipline. But you keep following this pathway, and uh, it can get you out. So what's the pathway? Ah, uh, the pathway. Oh, grasshopper, you want to know the <laughs> pathway. Well, okay, let's talk about the pathway. Children's book. I brought, we have literature. <laughs> um, In the business world, we say we have IP. You make it sound a little cooler. Yeah, you have IP. Yeah, we got some IP. <laughs> yeah. So this is our main training manual. We walk people through approximately 30 lessons uh, that, that are teaching different aspects of the process. The uh, I'm going to show you the process in two different pictures, okay? So I don't know how to read, so I uh, hope there are pictures. Yeah, no, well, there are pictures, so you're going to be, you're gonna really going to be happy. The solution we call this our model of human prosperity. So we have a model, we have a philosophy, we have a theory of this is how it happens. If you're going to solve poverty and create prosperity, and by the way, the way you solve poverty is you create prosperity. Prosperity is the solution to poverty. That's, they sound like, ooh, you get all eyes, you're on something there. But, <laughs> this uh, is a Joel Osteen message? Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and by the way, we don't preach and we don't believe uh, the prosperity gospel. <laughs> We don't believe that prosperity is a gift that you receive by faith. So we, it's not a gospel. We believe that prosperity is a process. That once you know the right things, and you do have to trust God, that God's leading you in it, and you have to trust God's word because these principles are also affirmed in the Bible. You can study economics and come to the same principles. You can study history and come to the same principles. My epiphany moment was after I had studied it in economics, I had studied it in history, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, this is in the Bible too. I was like, Whoa, you know, God had a plan. Uh, he didn't want Israel living in poverty. He didn't want his people living in poverty. And the basic course is there. Okay, so when you're looking at a culture, when you're looking at a society, you're saying, okay, what's going to determine whether they're in poverty or, or prosperity? We've, we've simplified it pretty simple, not to oversimplify it, but there is a, there's, an, it, it, there's a bottom-up and there's a top-down effect. The bottom-up happens at the individual level. The top-down are cultural conditions or community conditions, and they both, have, they both play. So if you have the right community, uh, community conditions, that, um, that helps create the results of prosperity. But individuals have to do their part too. And the individual steps are, first of all, there's a spiritual step, and, and there really has to be a transformation where at the faith level somebody thinks – uh, God has given us the truth on this and uh, this is the right thing to do. And I believe it at my deepest level. And I believe that doing it is God's will for my life. That may sound like we're getting a little hyper spiritual on the deal, but if you look, hist if you look historically at the greatest economic revolutions in the world that built human prosperity, the first huge one happened in Europe in the 1600s, 1700s and 1800s. It was a massive movement from the poor up to the middle class. And what drove that was Christianity. That is not often heard, but that is historically true. 
There was a man named Max Weber in 1905, a German sociologist, and he was not writing it from a Christian point of view. He was trying to answer the question, what drove that economic revolution in Europe? And the name of his book is The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. It's, it's a hotly debated text even to this day in sociology and history and economics. The people who are anti-Christian, they hate the book. The people who are pro-Christian like me are like, yeah, you saw it right. But what he was saying is that... Well, I think Jordan Peterson also agrees that it's right. He does. He does. He doesn't identify as a Christian. Yeah, yeah, he he, he does. And a number of others uh, that are robust researchers on the topic. But what they were saying is the reason why it was so powerful is what these people were doing in their work and in their jobs to create new value and to rise out of poverty, they saw that as a calling of God on their life. It was part of God's purpose for them. So when people believe something at a deep religious level, there's no motivation like that motivation. Yeah. So we start there. The next one is at the mental level. You've got to understand the truth of, of what actions, what principles solve poverty, and then you've got to get to the behavioral level of, okay, what are my behaviors? So we target mostly from the bottom up. 100 peop- 100% of the people that we train, they get trained on this. 1% we train on this. We teach them the 10 conditions to create a culture of prosperity. And um, I say 1% because about 1% of the people we train are going to be cultural leaders. They're going to want to affect politics. They're going to want to affect the culture. They're going to be people like pastors. They're going to be communicating to larger groups. They're going to be people working in government and running for office. The Okay, so what I'm going to go into next it's a it's a little involved so i don't know if you want me to just dive into it or yeah let's go okay so i mean i'll let me start by my theory my theory is that capitalism makes everything better amen And so my my theory is like how we solve everything is through capitalism and uh what destroys everything is corruption and crony capitalism so in haiti we have corruption and here we have crony capitalism yep and which is a destruction of freedom yeah yeah and 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 I prefer the I prefer the term economic uh, freedom. Same thing as capitalism, if you if you understand economic freedom. Uh, but yeah, no, I think we would say the same thing on those topics. I would agree with you on that. And so that's my theory. But at the same time, I've been in Kenya. Mm-hmm. I've spent time with a lot of pastors there who want to affect change and want to bring people out of uh, out of poverty, extreme poverty, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, you see the trash field in the slums that some are living in, and you just think, "How is this real?" Yeah, and there, there, something that's really heartbreaking for me was that it was like I met people that wanted a different and better life, and were unable to create it. Yeah, we're here. Like the only reason that people don't have a different, better life is because they don't want it. Like ninety nine point nine percent of the time. Yeah. So back to that picture here, those top things that we talked about, a lot of those exist. Now, a lot of those are being threatened right now. But in general, most of those things exist. So it means if you will do these things that we say at the individual level you got to do, you can get there. In Kenya, it's harder. In Haiti, it's really hard. But you can make progress. And you can – people who will step up and lead can make progress in their own life, and they can help change the culture. Kenya is one of our biggest footprints uh, where we have been working. So – uh, uh, well, Nairobi, Kasumu, uh, yeah, Kasumu is where I was. Is that where you were? 
and then uh, down on the coast in Melindi. Okay. It's kind of been our main areas where we have worked. Yeah, I um, I remember I had tilapia every day for two weeks. That is the tilapia <laughs> capital of the world. Right there, that, that big old lake, and they, they bring in those hauls of, of tilapia. It's it's big stuff, man. Um, yeah, I had a real awesome time in Kenya. When uh, were you there? Uh, about three years ago, I think. Yeah, two or three years ago. We may have been um, there at the same time. You never know. Yeah, it was. Uh, so, who did you go with? I went somehow related to the Southern Baptist Convention, maybe. Okay. Um, so there's a nonprofit university called Nations University, and so it was somehow with them, and then I was somehow with uh, a group of pastors that are like do training there. Okay. And okay. I don't know how it all worked out, but anyway, I was invited to go, and there was a conference going on for like Christian pastors there. Okay. I'm not a pastor, but I was there, uh, and I just saw. Uh, I remember I was working in coffee shops and I would just talk to like random locals and stuff. And I just remember thinking like, man, the vibes here, um, it, it, I don't know, it was, it was weird to, I, I kind of grew up where I thought like, oh, like the reason they're in a terrible condition is because they're not uh, a nation of faith because nations of faith are successful. Uh, but the truth is like, they're far more Christian there than we are here. <laughs> so that theory was wrong. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of like, I really enjoyed it, but I, I didn't really know. Like when, when people ask me like, how do we create economic success here? Um, like my answer is like provide value, but that's super broad. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, so anyway, I, I've been puzzled with that and I, sure. I love the people there sure. and I plan to take my wife and child there. Yeah. Uh, and do another tour, but um, did you ever run into a family there uh, with the last name of Okello? Yeah, they are they are leaders in the Southern Baptist movement, and they are uh, one of them is one of our certified trainers uh, on our team there. Um, are they somehow related to the government too? Yeah, one of them, Jared, is now a member of Parliament. Okay, yeah, I think we like ate dinner with them. He's a member of Parliament uh, from the Inyando district, which is where Kasumu is. So that's his home district great family and have known them for a lot of years and they have been involved with us in this process uh, of training different groups uh, in Kenya. So before I, before I get into that, can I tell you a Kenya story? Yeah. Okay. So one of our friends there, her name is uh, Madu. Madu Owino is uh, her name. And um, Madu grew up in one of the poor African villages. She lived a very typical life for girls in African villages and uh, when she was a young girl, her mother died and left her with her younger siblings and her father. Her father was mentally off and abusive. So it made, it, it turned out it, it, it made her essentially a domestic slave for her family to care for them. And so she would have to get up before sun up and uh, go to the river, fetch water, go fetch firewood and make some porridge for her father and her, her siblings at herself and get them ready for their day. And then she'd go off to school. She'd come back and do the same routine at lunch, go back to school, come do the same routine at dinner. And they would have school at night uh, in those days. She'd go back to school at night. A lot of times she would be late to school because doing her household chores and getting to school, it was hard. And so they would beat her with a cane uh, when she was late. And sometimes she just totally skipped school because she didn't want the beating. So this was her life. It was a, it was a tough deal. When she got older, smart, smart girl, and she figured out a way to get into college. She did pass exams at a high level at her entrance uh, qualifications. She got into college, graduated college. 
but never really, never really plugged into a uh, work career job that was felt to her like this is this is my fit. This is what I need to be doing with my life, and it's really going to take me where I need to go. So we were doing training. In fact, the Okellos and some of their friends would help us got get connected with some people in Kasumu. We were at a, a Catholic school actually, and all the parents of the students. We're in this big hall where we were training one day, and there was about 250 people in there. Madhu was in that group, and she took very careful notes, and this was essentially what we were teaching, uh, the principles of create, own, and grow. And so she went away from there convinced that it's economically true, historically true, and these are biblically grounded points. And so she was convinced, and she she made the decision. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start trying it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can make this happen. So the first point, the principle of create is that value is created. So you just said, yeah, produce value. That's true. Economically, it's deeper than that, and that is value. And we can say it in a number of ways. You can say money, wealth, prosperity is created. It's created. That's a revolutionary concept. Most people don't know that. Most people think money just comes out of somebody's <laughs> behind somewhere. Money is like on some big tree that the government owns, or it's in a basement somewhere, or the government just cranks it out and stores it, and there's and that's what makes. Well, the past year they've they've done a really good job yeah. of cranking well, it out, would, <laughs> and you would think that you would think that by the way our government has behaved recently, right? I mean, they, if you wonder why uh, used car prices are up. Yeah. 55%. Yeah. It's because they've done a real good job of just printing it yeah. out. <laughs> you know, and, and hold on. I, I I fear for what's coming uh, from all of this nonsense that's been going on. So so the average person does not think in terms of where does it come from? Uh, they just think in terms of somehow it's out there and the rich people are lucky, the poor people are not lucky, and there's some power in the world that directs it to the rich and keeps it away from the poor. What they don't realize is it's created. It's created in the work that people do. When people create a product or create a service or a solution that's useful, there's value to that. And that is the value that goes behind the money to give the money its worth. That's why you can go to any country in the world and the level that they're producing goods and services and solutions is matched with the value of their currency. So you go to a country that just has horrible currency. Well, they don't have a very good GDP. They're not producing much uh, in that country. The ones that do have strong currencies, they're, they're a powerhouse of creating. Well, it comes down to the individual level. Where, where, is, your, where is your money going to come from? Well, you create it. You create it. That's revolutionary and it's biblical. Uh, in uh, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, you have this revolutionary deal where God says, I created, I created you in my image. That's revolutionary. Really? We're created in the image of God. There's no other thing in creation that God says you're in my image, but he says that of human beings. And so what does that mean? And in the next verse, 28, God says, it says, it says, so God blessed the first human beings. Now they're created in his image. Now he, he pronounces, this is a good thing I'm going to say on you, and it's going to go forward with you, and it's going to make your life better. And he says this, go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, take dominion of it. So over the past several thousand years in both Jewish theology and Christian theology, the conclusion of, I think, the theologians that get it right, what their conclusion is, here's what, here's what was going on there. God was saying, I'm the creator, capital C. 
I created all the raw material. I created you with a special capacity that no other creature has. And I made you to be small little C. You create. And you, I will co-create with you, and you're co-creating with me, and here's what you do. When you go forth in the world and you use your talents, you use the gifts I've given you, you use the raw material of the world, you use your cooperation with one another, you're going to go create new things. I mean, uh, look at this. There is more There <laughs> is more computing power in that than the big, huge room computer that sent the first uh, rocket to the moon. Uh, how'd that come about? Because God has put in us the human capacity to figure that out. You know, and I, where we live, you got all these airplanes coming into DFW. It, I just, it never ceases to marvel me the, how these big things <laughs> stay in the air. I know. Human I think- beings figured that out. And, and so uh, the first principle is to create the best value you can. So look, the poor around the world do not think this way. Because we're from the West and we are, we are born into a Western culture that has been heavily influenced by Christianity from generations past. Most of us, especially those of us from any Christian heritage, we naturally think in terms of what's my best talent and how can I put it to use the best to make my best living. That's, how, that's what we think. That is not how the poor around the world think. The poor around the world think, I'm an unlucky son of a gun, and I'm just going to lower my head and take the work I've got, and I'm going to trudge and in this drudgery, and I'm just going to keep grinding it out. And this is also how AOC <laughs> thinks. <Yeah. laughs> like, do you know the comedian Theo Vaughn is? Uh, he's got that joke about uh, like he would love some white privilege. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I tell you, like I didn't know the scholarships existed. Nobody ever told oh, really? me. Really? I was homeschooled. Yeah. my parents never told me. Okay, okay. so I often like you're like, homeschooled. Yeah. Oh well, that explains your your clothes, man. <laughs> you have tremendous self confidence. <laughs> I'm proud. So, of, I'm proud of you, man. But so there's this this thing that's like uh, I'm like yeah I would have loved that I would have loved to know like I had two shirts and one pair of jeans yeah and I have two older brothers and my shirts and jeans were directly from them yeah, 15 years earlier yeah 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 <laughs> yeah 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 no that 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 that's right so so the poor of the world are coming from a worldview where most of them are only a few generations away from tribal culture in tribal culture the ethic is not to use your best talents to create the best value that you can. The, the, the ethic is how can I live the way we have traditionally lived with the least amount of effort? And that's not considered bad. That's considered, it's like, that's like, uh, uh, the bear in the jungle book, look for the bear necessities, you know, and (laughs) we're basically just hanging out, you know, and don't worry about anything. That's, that's tribal culture thinking. And I mean, there's, and there's some value to that, but, but it's not going to get you out of poverty. And so, so we, what we do is we begin walking people. We teach them 10 steps to just very specifically, okay, here's how you start changing your thinking. Here's how you start evaluating what your best abilities are. Here's how you start evaluating the opportunities around you, which really is a word for saying need or problems. What are the problems around you that you think you could figure out and fix that's going to create value? So how do you get on this, how do you get on this trajectory? that I'm going to keep growing and growing and knowing my talents, raising my knowledge, raising my skills that I can create higher and higher value. 
And we explain to them that the income you make is determined by the value you create. So even the average American teenager doesn't get this because the average American teenager thinks I can be in charge of the French fries at McDonald's and that ought to be a living wage. No, that value you created is not worth that much. (laughs) If you want to make more, you create more value. Be the manager of the McDonald's. Then you're going to have more money. The value you create determines the income Build you the make. robot that can replace your job. Yeah, well, you know, whatever, whatever is the best problem solution, right? Whatever is the best problem solution. So that's the first thing that we teach, and that, that is a game changer. On the surface, it doesn't sound like, oh, that's not that big a deal. Trust me. Trust me. They do not think this way. The next one is uh, the principle of own, and the economic principle is that property preserves prosperity. So the American dream is not only can I go and use my best efforts and increase my income, but I can build wealth. And you can build wealth if you can turn your money into capital. When you buy property with the income from your labor, something magical happened. You turned it into capital. And capital acts different than money. I'm not going to go into the details of why all that is, but it it does. So – One of the top three experts in the world on poverty is a man from Lima, Peru. He's still alive. His name is Hernando de Soto, not the explorer Hernando de Soto, the modern guy Hernando de Soto is his name. He's a university professor, and he also runs a nonprofit think tank. He's written a book called The Mystery of Capital, Why Capitalism Works in the West and Nowhere Else in the World. And he and his team have traveled the world. I own that book. I haven't read it, though. You own it. Good. Good. Good book. So I'm gonna I'll give you the I'm gonna give you the cliff notes. His thesis, and trust me, he's got the robust research and experience behind it. Uh his thesis is that the difference between the poor of the world and the non poor of the world is that the poor do not own property legally. The non poor have a pathway that they've learned how to own property. And that property gives them a vehicle to build wealth. Here's what happens. If you don't have something that preserves wealth and nothing, nothing does it like property because property has, can, can create multiple values at the same time. You can live there. It usually grows in value. You may be able to rent out part of it. You could run a business in it, such as you could grow a garden there. You can grow chickens there. I mean, there's what other investment can you do all that there? You can't live, you can't live in any other investment other than property. So property, property has this unique thing. And um, yeah, and it's the one thing that all rich people have in common. All rich, all, but not just the rich, all non-poor. <laughs> yeah, or more, I should say, most non-poor and most middle class. It's it's the defining experience of what breaks you into middle class. So so um, the poor of the world, they live on property, they farm property, they work on property, but they don't own it. They do not have the legal deed to it, and and that is a, that's that changes everything having the legal property. If you don't own property, here's what happens. We say it this way, cash has wings. Cash has wings. Nothing disappears faster than cash. And nothing disappears faster than cash in your pocket, especially if you have children and especially if you're married. (laughs) Because there is no end to what we want. There's no end to our desires. There's no end to consumption. It's like you always got to have the next. And so cash is just, it's so hard to keep cash. In cultures that do not have this ethic, they come from a tribal worldview economically. 
They do not believe, they don't have this concept of private property the way we have it in the West, which is rooted in biblical principles. And so here's how it works. If one of them does not have any chickens and their brother has two chickens, then their assumption is that second chicken's mine because, you know, we're all in this. Instead of thinking, no, you, you you bought the chicken, you work for the chicken, you raise the chicken, there's a boundary between what is your ownership and what is my ownership. Once they get a deed and they start understanding private property and they realize I can build this up and my consumption is not going to tear it apart and all my family and friends are not going to come mooch, that's a strong word, isn't it, are not going to come ask me to help them Honestly, in some of these cultures, they some of them will not even take a bigger job because they are sick and tired of their families hammering them for the money. So this becomes a, this becomes a big change maker uh, in their life. So we we work with them to understand how to do it and to begin doing it. And then the third one, not everybody can do all three, but the prosperous of the world do all three. And the reason it's in a cycle is because this becomes a virtuous cycle. If you can grow a business, if you can buy property and you can grow the best business you can, once you have done that, guess what? It gives you the ability. You start figuring out you can create even more value because you you start learning what you're good at. You get better and better. Guess what? You can buy a bigger property or another property. Guess what? You can either expand your business on the next cycle or start another business. And so the wealthy of the world get into this virtual cycle. And as one of my friends used to say, the rich get richer and the poor get children. <laughs> but, but, but here's why the rich get richer, because they get in the virtuous cycle. The poor are in a vicious cycle. They're not getting out because they're not doing that. They're not doing that. They're not doing that, and it's not creating the virtuous cycle. So an obvious question is, isn't that too much to expect the poor to understand and to begin getting into that cycle. And our experience is, no, it's not. It's not too much. And it's not instant either. You know, that's the thing is people, oh, see, you, know, you know, like not. I look at my, absolutely not. I look at my business experience and I'm able to, you know, I could go make a hundred grand in seven days if I need to. Like I need to go make a hundred grand. I could do that in seven days because I've been running businesses since I was 12 where 10 years, five years ago, three years ago, you said you need to go make hundred grand. It would take me four months, six months, a year. Um, and so it's just, again, it's that, that cycle, <laughs> like yeah. as your network grows, mm-hmm. as you see your value and the so, things you're able to do grow. So you are an example of a person who's in the virtuous cycle. Yeah. And you're living it. You're living the dream. And that really is the American dream. The American dream, this is part of the American dream, but this is also, this is the American dream. Where, where else in the world have people been able to do this quite with the freedoms and the capacities you could do it here? Yeah, and, you know, like I always say, like, I'm trying to, the second I get cash, I'm just trying to put it somewhere because I love things. Like, I would have, I would have 25 cars in the driveway. So you um, don't want to blow it on consumption. <laughs> you want to move it into preserve value. Yeah, well, even, like, a, a chance at it. Like, yeah. I'll just, like, um, you know, the other day, I like, uh, I put money in our personal, most time I try to leave all my money in the bank, like the business accounts, I don't pay taxes on it and the business can do things. Right. But I move money ever. And then we ended up not needing it or whatever. And so like I had like this sum of money in my account 
And so I took like 95% of it and I just put it in Bitcoin when Bitcoin went down. Yeah. And I was like, look, it might keep going down. That's fine. I believe that it will eventually go up and I'll get a return on this. And sometimes it's good when it goes down lower than what I bought in at because then it forces me not to be able to touch it. Yeah. And I have to go right back into the value stage. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so yeah, you're, you're living it, you're practicing it. Um, these, these now are second nature to the culture in the economic culture of your brain. It fits this model. Let me go back to my story with this gal named when Madhu. she, so she, here's the training. So now I've just explained the cycle. So this, this is the first time in her life she's ever heard this. So she goes to apply it. And the first thing that she did, because she was working with a group of people that would host American, uh, tourists, mostly Southern Baptist tourists and missionaries. And she was helping provide the food for them and they would help them with their housing, get that all arranged. So she had a group of gals working with her. So she was used to cooking uh, big meals for these groups. So here's what we usually see happens with the poor. And we tell them to do this. We say, start with what you know and start with what you have. One of the biggest misconceptions that a lot of the poor have is I can't do anything if I don't get a big loan. It's not true. Start where you are, start with what you have, and start creating the next level of value. So she found uh, a little a little uh, building, a commercial building that she could rent cheaply, and she started a cafe. And she's like, I know how to cook. I got the utensils. I've got gals that work for me. We're going to go open up. So they open up a little cafe, and the thing turns out to be pretty successful pretty quick. And so she's humming along running her cafe. Then uh, she says, um, what else can I do? In... Kenya, you may, I don't know if you are aware of this, you probably are. In Kenya, there's a lot of funerals. <laughs> there's a lot of dying going on in that culture. <laughs> and there are huge food events. And there's a lot of, and the weddings are huge food events. And so I don't know how these poor people afford all this, but somebody's ponying up when people die. And, and so she got into the catering business and say, we're going to start providing the tents and the tables and the chairs, and we're going to start catering this thing. They had, there was the death of one of a major uh, political figure out there, and she got the catering contract for it. They put all the tents out. And this is in the Kasuma area. And they fed, in one day, they fed 5,000 people. I have worked in the food and beverage industry before, and I know what a daunting task that would be. <laughs> And, and, I, and so I hosted an event with 50 people here, 35 people here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a challenge, right? We cooked bacon for six hours, I think. <laughs> yeah. So so what I tell people is there's only two people I know who's, who have fed 5,000. One is Jesus and the other one is Madhu, you know. So but so she's so now she's running that catering part of her business. Then she got hooked in with uh, uh, selling these uh, food supplements and health supplements, which it kind of amazes me that people – and the consumer area would want to buy them, but they buy them. Yeah, I'm so negative. If somebody in Kenya pitched me that, I'd be like, yeah, that's not a product. No, no, here. I'm like, I'm not in on that's that like one. That's like a. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'd be like, no, I'm not in on that one. But she got in on it. One of the reasons is all, zero capital to get in. She just signs up and gets in it, you know? And and then she started lining up, and it is, it's a multi, it's a multi level marketing deal. And uh, she, so she so started. It's rooted in evil. Okay. Yeah. Well, I hate multi level marketing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> me, me too, but guess what? <laughs> They're killing it, man. And so she's got all these young people that are working for her. She's got this huge downline going, and she's killing it in that business. Um, so then I get a I get a email from her brother in law, and her brother in law goes, 
John, you know, they call me, no, the, or they call me, John, John, <laughs> Pastor John. It's like, John, you're not going to believe what Madhu did. She went and bought a car uh, for cash, and she didn't even ask her husband for any money for it. And, and her brother-in-law just thought that was hilarious. That, that, you know, the husband was not, he, well, in that area, I don't know if you picked up on it, but you don't see very many women driving cars. Uh, that's not really a women thing, much less owning and going buying one on your own. Then I get, the next week I get another email, John, John, you would not believe what, what Madhu did. She went and bought a piece of property and I think she just bought it for speculation. And he said, again, she did not ask her husband for money. She had generated that money in her. So she, she's been doing this and she's now buying the property. She's getting businesses that are going. I was there in March of 2020 right when COVID was, was in fact, I spoke in two of the largest churches in Nairobi, the two Sundays before the country was shut down and they couldn't go to church anymore. So that's when we were there. And I was out in Kasumu, uh, Madhu knew I was coming and she asked, would you spend a couple of days doing training of my team? So she brought all her staff together from her different businesses, about 30, 30 young people there. And I mean, I just like, I was just thrilled to see this gal systematically putting these pieces together she's like and, and driving around with her in those communities it's like everybody knows who she is she's like a rock star uh there and she's bringing up all these young people in the last year one of the one of the guys who was one of her distributors or sales guys on the on the uh food supplement business he's been one of her best salesmen his name is brian really sweet kid uh and he was in the training when i was there they were sending me the pictures uh, this year that she and Brian went together and they bought a a piece of farmland and they hired workers to plant it and uh, it's going to get a rotation of about three or four crops this year. Um, I, I don't remember the crop that they're raising, but they they had just gotten their first crop in and they took it to market and they cleared two thousand American on their crop. I mean. 2000 American that's a war chest in Kenya. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> Brian Brian wrote me his story. I wanted him to write in his own words. He told me the story of how he grew up an orphan and he lived on the streets uh from about uh, 8 years old up to his current age he lived on the streets. Madu found him and put him to work selling the supplements. He went to our training when I was there in 2020. He was just, he was lit up with, with this training and uh, was really working hard in that. And, and finally, he put enough money together. He could partner with her in buying that property and uh, working in this farm business together. And I, I have his story uh, in our training manual. And he says, um, John, my goal in life, my vision is that I want to be one of the most successful farmers in, in Yondo County. And I want to teach the next generation of young people in, in this part of Kenya um, how to get out of poverty and create prosperity. So, um, you know, everywhere we go, we're seeing it. We, we, we see the examples of it happening. Um, it, it, sometimes it shocks me um, because I'm like, really? I mean, theoretically, it ought to work. <laughs> and we stuck it out there and started training and teaching people. And they, they actually believed us. And then they went out and did it, and we're like, "Wow, wow! Uh, these these principles they are rooted in in the Bible. They're economically sound. They're historically proven. Uh, they work in our lives. Uh, they work everywhere if there's enough freedom. 
That's why we give the 10 conditions because these 10 conditions help preserve the freedom so the people can do that. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. How do y'all make money off these trainings that you do or we're a non- we're donations? Non- we're a nonprofit and we raise, we raise our money. Okay. And, and the people, quite frankly, who are our primary uh, supporters are people who own businesses in the U.S. Because when we explain what we're doing to business owners, they're like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and, and look, again, there is some charity that's good and worthy. But they also, but these business owners also understand that when they put a charity and put money in a charity that gives them a bag of rice, that rice either gets consumed or they go sell it on the black market. But when it's gone, it's gone. Your twenty dollars or whatever you gave them for that rice, once it's consumed, it's done. It's gone. It's going to take another twenty bucks to get another bag of rice. They get it. They're business people. They realize when you invest a dollar in what we're doing and we train somebody. That person gets to the point they don't need your dollar. They don't need your $20. They don't need your bag of rice. They're going to go create their own. Now, in the case of the woman that's super successful, is she now donating to the program? She is. Uh, she's not donating to the program, but she is one of our certified trainers now, and she's training others uh, how to do this. And where she is giving her uh, stewardship money is she's got a group of orphans that she supports and several other ministries in Kenya that she supports. Got it. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't know if, like, you know, if you make people successful, if like the kind of the agreement is now you help us help more people. That's not a bad idea because we we believe in stewardship for everybody. I mean, it, it works for everybody, right? And uh, that's not a bad idea. Uh, but what we do see, and we do teach stewardship in, in the process. So one of the 10 things that we put in there is, is a point about stewardship. You've, you've got to start giving back right away and make that part of your life, make that part of your personal culture. Yeah, because if, if the thing is, well, I'll give tomorrow, then tomorrow just never happens. Yeah, and you know, you've heard you've heard uh, motivational speakers and, and like John Maxwell and others, when they talk about it, they say, you know, you, you have to get away from a, uh, a mentality of scarcity and you have to live with a mentality of abundance. We say it a little differently. We live, we, we challenge people live in a value of creation, which means I believe God gave me talents. I believe God will give me opportunity. I believe I can go to work and create more value, and I believe God will bless it. So my giving today is not like, oh, no, I'll never <laughs> see that dollar again. <laughs> no. It's like, no, we'll go make some more. Let's go create the next thing. Let's go yeah. make the next thing. Let's work another week and, and, and use our best innovation and, 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 and pray that God leads us, but we work hard at it and do our best, and we'll create more. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. Like, there's – when you give until it hurts, then you're forced into a spot to say, cool, I've now made this commitment and now I need to go make money to be able to live up to this commitment. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's part of it. But my experience over the years, I mean, I'm, I'm an old dog now I'm 61 and I've just been in this life of, of training people for a lot of my life in stewardship principles. And I know the people who live the life of stewardship and I know the people who have chosen not to. And my personal observation is that the people who have lived a life of stewardship, they're bigger people. They're bigger people. They have bigger hearts. They have bigger lives. They have bigger blessings. I just I just look at it and I say, do I want to be in this group or do I want to be in this group? I'm like, I want to be in this group. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, you can actually find that in everything. You know? Yeah. 
uh, my big, this is not a dig on Pierre, but I always make fun of Android users. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, well, yeah, so yeah. I'm like, you know, which group do you want to be? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those boring Android users or us exciting uh, Apple users over uh, here? I'm gonna go like when you look at church attendance numbers of Gen Z, they're real bad. Yeah, you know, I think there's a turnoff on the Walmarting of the church um, into big kind of consumer oriented uh, driven organizations i don't in general i don't like what the church has become in america and i even lived through that generation and i was actually part of uh creating more contemporary and more consumer uh uh friendly churches and i look back on it and with a lot of questions and not real happy with the outcome of where we're at and why and um yeah because uh, my wife and I have visited some more, uh, you know, the, the cooler churches, um, you know, like there's, there's the Baptist church on the corner and, you know, then there's the one that's got some cool name, you know, like angel fall or, um, mm-hmm. rock quarry or, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> rock quarry fellowship, yeah. you know, <laughs> deep dive community, come take a deep dive with us. I'm like, okay, thank you. Um, and so there seems to be this very, uh, like this trend that we see where they first play a five minute video about whatever their sermon series is on. That's like, you know, the most produced video ever. <laughs> yeah. And then they, uh, they have some hype man that hypes up the sermon series and the church and all the things. And then he introduces the pastor or he introduces my personal favorite, the pastor and the pastor's wife. And they sit on stage and they just give like a, uh, a life, a life coaching sermon. So they give a bunch of tips on, you know, like, Hey, you need to have bad relationships out of your life. Those pull down on you. Yeah. And then occasionally because of the church, yeah. they're like, you know, it's an open cause God, it, it, because God, yeah. it's a, it's an Oprah <laughs> show or a Dr. Phil show with a few Bible verses sprinkled <laughs> yeah. in. Right. And to mm. me, it's like the biggest turnoff because I yeah. want to leave church sick. And I, like, I don't, yeah, the truth, because I want to yeah. feel convicted about the sin of my life because I'm yeah. an in-person person yeah. in need of the gospel. I know. And, you know, my wife and I are at a point in our life where we are, we're struggling. We're struggling with that issue because we both, we both feel like, gosh, we just want church. We, <laughs> we, we just want the Bible taught straight and clean and here's what it means and somebody really put serious study into it and uh, could give a, a good message and can apply it to the real issues of life and forgive me and I don't mean to offend you because you're younger but we are so tired of the skinny jean and the smoke on stage and some guy up there doing what I call whiny worship <laughs> who doesn't know jack about the bible or spiritual maturity acting like he's going to lead us into the very presence of God now like we have never experienced before there's this A.W. Tozer quote where he says, uh, the church maintains tawdry circus acts to keep the attention of the church people. Yeah. And when all the lights go dark and smoke machines and lasers start to shoot out, I think this feels a lot like that quote. <laughs> yeah. So, so kind of the philosophy of ministry that I came to is that <clears throat> the purpose of Christianity is basically three functions. Evangelism 
discipleship to get Christians to spiritual maturity and then cultural redemption. And I mean by cultural redemption, you're out in the world changing things that are wrong and you're bringing the answers of Christ to it. Not everybody believes in that philosophy of ministry, but that's where I ended up. And I also came to the conclusion that there's a lot of churches that are pretty good evangelism churches, but they're not good at the other two. There's a lot of good churches. They're just really great Bible teaching churches. They're good at the discipleship. If you sit there for 10 years, you're going to end up having a Bible college education. But they don't win a lot to Christ, and they're really not engaged in the problems of the community or the world. That They're just kind of like the Bible expert church. And and so it's hard to find one that's good at all three. I, I, I tried to do all three when I was a pastor, but you know when I kind of got to the last season, this season of my life, I realized that God was calling me to you have to jump into a cultural redemption part of it now. You've been doing the evangelism and the discipleship a lot, but I was frustrated because the church was not engaged in the problems of the world enough dealing with that. And this was the main problem that God would not let go in my heart. So not only are we trying to create a revolution with the poor who need this, we're trying to create a revolution among the church saying, look, as a church, you need to jump on with us or with other things like this that are culturally engaged to shape the culture for good because Christianity has been a very powerful force historically to create better culture. Uh, it reformed the prison abuse in England. It, it was the number one force to end slavery both in England and in America. Uh, civil rights movement with Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, he was using biblical, biblical arguments for what was a good thing. I mean, equality is a good thing. And, um, you know, it, I believe I believe that the church has got to be the salt and the light. Jesus didn't say be the salt and light of the church. He said you're the salt and light of the earth. Get out there, make it better, <laughs> preserve it. Yeah. So that's what we tend to find is if we finally find a church that we like on like Sundays, which for us is we just want deep historical context. We want to go over one passage of scripture. I want you to go all the way back because I don't have a degree in like historical biblical studies <laughs> yeah um and then relate today's common time and whatever you know like i just love when we like focus on scripture yeah. um and i like to feel convicted because i i do want to improve i i i need that um and so if we do find that then the next step is okay finding community at this church and sometimes that's just like the stage of life you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we found it like much easier because we have a kid. So we're mm-hmm. like the married with a kid, mm-hmm. but like single running successful companies, <laughs> uh, it was just me out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, we found, okay, cool. Now we found a bunch of other people that are married with young kids. Like this is great. And then where I feel strongest about it. And I it seems to just where the massive drop off falls, which is, be the hands and feet of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's just like, people are like, oh, well, you know, I'm busy with my job and I got the kid and da, da, da. And it's like, for me, I want my kid out there with us, feeding homeless people, building houses, whatever the case is. Like I want, I want us to be in the community as a family and I don't want it to be, cause this is what churches do. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, cross, do you know what cross point in Nashville? I've heard of it. Um, so, Crosspoint is like, a, you know, like they preach the gospel, but not a gospel that would ever offend anybody. Um, but, but also don't, you know, they do preach 
words. They are the words of Jesus. So they're kind of in between. They're not like, they're not as bad as Joel Osteen, maybe. Um, <laughs> and uh, they do like once a year, once a year, they're big thing is serve the city where they get like everybody to volunteer and everybody gets t-shirts. And of course they bring in like the token, the token, the token. That, that's what I always think is funny about going to feed people at Thanksgiving. It's like, well, what about every other day of the year? I mean, they're, they're hungry those days too. Yeah. And so it's called serve the city. Everybody's got a t-shirt. And, yeah. Um, I, I was there helping out and, uh, one of the pastors and I got into a fight at a, <laughs> Dude. all right, man. not a physical fight, but okay. just like, uh, like he was just like attacking me because I went to another church. Okay, and I was like, "You realize I'm just here because I want to love on people. Like yeah. I'm just here because I saw a volunteer opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And like in your mind, it's like a church attendance game, and you're yeah. like, here's somebody who's not a member of my church, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but neither here nor there. It's like one day a week. That's it. It's like here, like one. Sorry, one day a month or a year. Here's our one event: serve the city, and then you know the following Sunday. Look what we did yesterday. They yeah, played this yeah, crazy video yeah, 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 and yeah, yeah. the drone shots and all yeah, that. Yeah. We're and cha- just, we're changing the world. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so disheartening. And again, if I was an Instagram influencer, I'm sure I'd feel great. And I'd be like, I'm just awesome. Yeah, I'm just yeah. changing the I was, I did yeah. the whiny voice when I did Instagram. Yeah. I'm just like really oh, God yeah. is just leading me. <laughs> you, you've got that figured out. That's, that, um, that's about the profile. So you know, that is that seems to be the biggest drop off. And my challenge to myself has been, do I keep looking or do I be the guy that starts this? Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, it's like I could just hire like another assistant on staff and be like, hey, find volunteer options, put them on a calendar. We'll send everybody in our group. You know, so like part of me knows like, okay, I can like maybe put this together. But it, that's what we see is we see that like if you find the church, you find the community, then people just want to focus on themselves yeah. And to me, like my most joy, I mean, I'm an extrovert, so that's part of it, but I love being out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm not an extrovert. Uh, I'm an introvert. I'm a, I'm, I'm kind of like my, my joy is doing the research and figuring it out and then going out and teaching it and then getting back in my cubby hole and researching some more and then teaching and, and strategizing how are we going to turn this into a movement? Uh, we want to try to lead a million people out of poverty by 2030. So you got to think in terms of scale. What's going to, what are the barriers to getting that kind of scale? How we turn it into an educational movement where nationals become the teachers of it and it starts multiplying. So that, that, that's, that's kind of my deal. Um, but I think it's the same struggle because our struggle is it's hard to find the Sunday experience or the worship experience that you feel like, okay, we actually did church. I I, I was challenged with God's word today, and I'm walking away feeling like I, I was fed, I was corrected, I was uplifted, and that was good. And then how do I get into a community experience where I feel like, okay, that does what community experiences need to do. And then, okay, what's my outlet for, you know, how, how do I get engaged? How and do I get engaged? And You hear like Francis Chan and he talks about, you know, when I'm asked to read the Bible and then find, uh, put a church on every single corner, <laughs> I got a real hard time. Yeah. You know, like, like this, this just whole just change of like, is this just a giant corporation? You know, like uh, even when I hear... Uh, there was a rumor who knows if it's true, but like the, there's a church in Nashville called Brentwood Baptist, very successful. Mike Lynn, very good pastor. Uh, apparently he made like a million dollars a year was like the rumor. I have no clue if it's true. 
don't add any light to it. Uh, but it made me start to think of this idea that the senior pastor often gets paid more than everybody. Like a CEO would get paid more than everybody. But like if it was Jesus, I feel like you'd probably just pay people based on need. Mm-hmm. Like he'd be like, oh, well, you're like yeah. retired with, you know, you don't have very many expenses. Your house is paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, but this lady has like six kids and uh, her husband died. So like we're like we're going to pay her more. Mm-hmm. I don't, like I just like is that do you think that's wrong or right or like what are your thoughts on just general structure like how should church even be structured in your mind of course you were like a pastor of one I don't know if you were the highest paid individual on staff but I was the highest paid individual on staff I was the lead pastor um, and so as organizations get bigger you have different levels of the work and the highest level of the work is usually your top guy. Uh, whether he's the CEO or the owner of the company or whatever, in a in a church context or a nonprofit context, whoever's that top guy or gal has the complexity of running this broader organization. That's a higher level of work. It's a higher level of responsibility than the next level and the next level and the next level. So I do believe that there are commensurate levels of pay with the load you're carrying. And you are also creating value. I, I have no idea how to comment on a guy making that much money. <laughs> um, I, I I was in the wrong part of the country because I was not making that kind of money. <laughs> and I was certainly not the highest paid guy in the church. I had all kinds of business guys making far, far more than me. Uh, but I was, for that context, I was I felt properly compensated. Um, um so there, it's a balance, you know, it's it's ministry, so I don't expect to get paid like I'd be paid in a corporate world. But there is a sense that, let's come back to this, the value you create determines the income you make, period. And that happens in ministry too. So if you're preaching and your organizational uh, capability is creating a massive ministry that's bringing in, uh, I have a buddy here that started a church 13 years ago, and their their annual budget now is about fifty million dollars a year. That's a big organization. It's complex, multi campus, very complex. And fellowship. I would, pardon me. Fellowship. No. No. <laughs> and uh, and it was uh, it's multi campus. Uh, it's big. It's massive. He has a he has a national ministry now, and I know him from his early days because I was on his board in his early days, and he was not making jack, even when his church was doing good. He was not making jack. And he's been conservative all along. Now he's making jack. <laughs> but he is – I don't know anybody who works harder than him. I, I, I expect any day I'm going to get the call and my friend is dead of a heart attack. He is killing himself for Jesus. And I don't know if that's good either. <laughs> but but I've, he's a working fool. I've never seen a guy work so hard, so committed, smart, work hard, work smart, and carry a tremendous load. And my feeling towards him is he's earned every daggum dime he's made. And uh, and I don't think there's anybody that resents it uh, because of just man, what a but productive what guy he is. Determines what what do we look at as success in ministry? Do we look at how many people donate to your church, or how many people attend, or do we look at how many people come to know Jesus, how many people grow in their spiritual faith? Like, sure, yeah. No, what's that number? Because that's yeah. the thing is like, let's say your church brings in a hundred million dollars worth of donations. Yeah, cool. You were able to attract rich people to donate to your church. Okay, that's a, that that could be one answer of it for sure. Okay. Uh, so, so I think it is appropriate to, I think that every church ought to set their metrics and say, these are our metrics and the metrics, you know, uh, to me are 
Um, look, if nobody shows up, you're not doing too good. <laughs> so people showing up, not people showing up, there's a difference in that. So it's it's good. I, pe- you want people to hear the word of God. You want them to be under the, the experiences that are spiritually formative, that are taking them along the way of where God wants to take them. It's not the only measure, obviously. You're looking at um, how many professions of faith, how many people are getting baptized, how many people are in discipleship systems that are actually designed to bring them to maturity within a certain amount of time. Um, what kind of ministries do we have in this community that are that are hitting target groups of needs where we're stepping in there and we're regularly engaged in those needs and we're seeing elevation, we're seeing redemption in those parts of the culture. If 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 it's all of that and it's growing, I'm pretty comfortable with the growth. If it's just a big show like what you're saying, you know, smoke and mirrors and a big circus, eh, you know. Yeah, because I look at like, you know, uh, I'll use I'll pick on Brentwood Baptist. Um, shout out to all my friends that still go there. Uh, you know, they have an $18 million budget and I think something like, you know, 50 people gave their life to Christ there last year at, you know, they have like six campuses at this one main campus and maybe it's like 300 people, but let's say it's 300 people. You have an $18 million budget. We can do some quick math on that and go, wow, you're spending. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah no, that, that, that costs a lot of money to bring one person yeah. to Jesus. And, 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 and in reality, it doesn't cost anything to bring anybody to Jesus. Yeah. You just have to share your faith. Right. Uh, so, so. So yeah, and just in terms of of the evangelism equation, those are good hard questions to ask of any ministry. So um, let me ask you: uh, um, Were you saying that you're thinking about maybe I should start a church? Is that what you were saying? No. What were you saying? Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, I was just saying that like I see uh, when when I you know I'm like okay, we found good church, we found good community. But all the community is completely self-focused, okay. and not world-focused, like okay. not focused on being the hands and feet of Jesus. Right, right, right. And so my conviction of that is, you know, like my first thought is, okay, keep looking. And then my second thought is, well, how about I just create the opportunities sure. for them to volunteer with sure. my wife and I? Yeah. No, that's a great that's a great solution. It's also a great solution if you want to start a church, go do it. But but yeah, no, I think I think on any of those situations where you feel like, okay, maybe I need to initiate here and, and create what I'm wanting. Um, yeah. And then my, but my general deep seated like annoyance is that like it tends to be, it, it's crazy to me what percentage of people, and now I'm in this percentage. I haven't volunteered in Dallas, I don't believe. Um, with that being said, I've like signed up for several things, but due to COVID, they get canceled or not. You know, <laughs> everything's just weird here. Yep. Uh, but because uh, apparently people don't need to be fed when when the COVID is, is you know, it's just. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I just have this general frustration with if a church has ten thousand members, one percent of one percent has volunteered more than twice a year. So, yeah, um, yeah, you know, I. Years ago, I came here to go to Dallas Seminary, and I did about uh, a year and a half here. And then I moved to Denver and um, was engaged in some ministry, involved in some ministry there, and I finished my seminary work at Denver Seminary. And I had a guy 
who had who had graduated from Dallas Seminary, and he ended up being on the faculty of Denver Seminary, and he was in a very I think you would love this church that he was involved in. It was a very innovative church in the day. And he said to me, he said, you know, people in Dallas measure their spirituality by what celebrity Bible teacher they go listen to. And then he was saying in Denver, kind of the rage was, who's the Christian counselor that you go to? And what he was saying is that the problem with most people is that you get these pockets of what Christian culture is. And everybody kind of just plays that game. <laughs> In fact, my guy who's built the big church uh, here locally, he says it to his church all the time. Half the problem is getting the unchurched saved, but the other one is getting the saved to act like they're saved. He goes, that's just as big a problem here as as evangelism because so much of it's just a big game to everybody. That doesn't mean anything. But but back to the the churches the guy was involved with in Denver. It was called Bear Valley Church. It was a, had been a Baptist church, Bear, Bear Valley Baptist Church, and they came they came up to a philosophy of ministry which they were going to say we're going to get we're going to get into the cultural redemption game. We kill we still do evangelism, we still do discipleship, but we're going to challenge our people to start thinking about what need group of people in our community should you personally figure out a way to go start ministering to them, and. That focus of ministry gave birth to a lot of really great ministries. Um, have you heard of Mops International? Mm-mm. It's mothers of preschoolers, and it's all over the country. In fact, it's 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 international now. That was born out of that church, and a, a couple of moms who had preschoolers is saying, "We're stuck in the house all day with these little kids, and we need some other Christian fellowship with uh, some moms, so we're not going crazy." And it ends up being this great Bible study and and uh, movement among these gals, and now it's turned into a big international missions and evangelism organization. They In those days, there had been a lot of refugees from Cambodia and Vietnam that had got uh, uh, placed in the Viet, um, in the Denver area, and there were some Bear Valley people that were living close to them, and they, they kept they're like, God's calling us, God's calling us. So they, they started reaching out, and they built a fantastic ministry among uh, the Vietnamese. One of the guys... He was he did his work downtown, and he's constantly seeing these high school dropouts living downtown, and a, a number of them pregnant girls. And he ended up starting what's what they called the downtown street school. Um, and they just had a little room to start with, and they had a few cribs in there where the girls would come in with babies. And they were they were finishing a high school education in there, and Christians were helping them out. Today, this is thirty years later. Today, the Denver Street School is one of the most famous schools of its type in the country. And it is today funded by some of the biggest corporations in Colorado. I mean, they just, but it, but it started with people saying, who's in need? And, and where is God won't let, God won't let go. We, we got to do something. So we're going to step in and start helping them. It, it, it was, and, and to me, I just felt like that's the model. That's yeah. the model. And see, like my, sometimes I do, I challenge myself of have I just been called to do stuff like that? And that's why I feel the strong conviction and other people haven't or are other people just ignoring that calling? Cause to me, it's like when I look at like, like God doesn't say like, uh, like think about feeding the hungry and clothing the poor. <laughs> like if you're called to do that, he's like, like it's just a scripture. Like this is what you're called to do. And so, but it's but at the same time I'm around like 30 couples 
that are all Christians and not one has ever sent a group text. It's like, Hey guys, we're volunteering this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, not one yeah. and including myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and well, we all said we're the first person in the group that, uh, that hosted an event. You know, we invited everybody over for brunch. Yeah. I spent bacon for six hours, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I don't know. I've just, it's something I'm really, um, I just want change. I just feel like this is what God would like when I read the Bible, I just feel like, man, I feel, I don't see the value in creating churches in every corner. Um, but I do see the value of sharing the gospel. I do see the value of discipleship and I do see the value of being the hands and feet of Jesus. And that's, this seems so, to be all super through gospel. So let me tell you the model of my friends in Guatemala. And because I think what they came to is similar to what you're feeling. They used to work on church staffs in America and, you know, typical blowing and going hard, hard driving church staffs. And they just got totally burnt out on it because they just, they felt all the, inconsistencies that you just talked about. So they broke away from it, took a couple of years to rest. And then all of a sudden the conviction in their heart and mind was let's sell everything we own and let's go find a poor community and let's just take our kids. They had small kids in those days and let's just parachute into that community. No missions training, no language training, nothing. Let's just parachute into that community and see what God wants us to do. So they found this poor community in Guatemala called Buena Vista and Magdalena, and they moved there 12 years ago. Their names are Mark and Gina Schmidt, and their name of their ministry is Deep Stream, uh, Deep Stream, in one word, with a capital D, capital S, Deep Stream, and you can find them online. But anyway, uh, and a good friend of mine introduced me to them, and we just got back from training their people in our training system. And um, so they got there. And they really had no intention of starting a church. They had the intention of let's just minister the way God calls us to. And the first need that they saw was many of the people around them where they were living had babies that were malnourished. So they said, let's start helping these moms. And so they started helping them get what it was take for these babies to have proper nutrition. So now they're building relationships. And as they're building relationships, they start winning some of them to Christ. And they started doing Bible studies and discipleship with some of them. And then their next deal was, you know what? There's a a younger grade of kids here. They're just hanging out. There's no school option for them. We've got to get these kids in some kind of – so they they started that grade. Well, that grade is now turned into a K-12 school that their campus of – their campus is basically a community development campus. It's not a church. It's a community development campus, and the school is kind of the crown jewel of the campus. But they have agricultural projects, they have livestock projects, they have work skill projects, they have adult literacy projects, they have alcoholism recovery ministry because that's a huge problem in their community. And they have just kept just saying, okay, God, what's the next need? What's the next need? What's the next need? And they keep doing evangelism. They keep doing discipleship. And I was talking to them and I was saying, and I was talking to them about the Bear Valley model from back in the day in Denver. And I said, look, the pastor back in those days, here's how he used to say it. He used to say, if you were to take church people and tell those church people, I want you to go over here to this apartment complex that maybe is lower income and maybe is ethnic, I want you to go start a ministry in that apartment complex. He said, church people don't know what you're talking about. But if you take somebody from a parachurch background, like Youth for Christ, Campus Crusade, um, more missions-oriented organization, and you tell them, 
go start. They know exactly what you're saying. They're not trying to start a church. They're just going to parachute in and start meeting needs. And they will uh, uh, naturally start winning people to Christ and naturally start discipleship. And they're, they're not, they never intended to start a church, but they're doing the things that you would hope church would do. So now I, I had this long philosophical conversation with my friends in Guatemala just last week when I was there with them. And I was, I was saying, look, cause, cause even to this day, I can tell they're, they, 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 they even feel a little guilty and they feel like anytime somebody like me from a church background comes that I'm judging them like, well, where's the church? <laughs> and, 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 you know, the conclusion was you have been the hands, the arms, the feet of Jesus here. You've won people to Christ. You've discipled people. You've met some of the deep, you're changing this community. What more does a church do than that? You are being the church. You just don't call it the church. You call it deep stream. And then we put the word ministry on. They call it deep stream. And, and, and they got that from the idea that when God calls, that God's spirit runs deep in our life. And when you get that sense of calling, it's like this deep stream in your heart that you just feel compelled that I got to go this way with God and what he's calling me to do. I just tell you that they're... They have a beautiful family. They are beautiful people. I fell in love with them. I fell in love with the spirit of their ministry. When we were explaining what we did with them, they're like, oh, this is the missing piece because they want to get them to be self-sufficient economically. And right now they're too dependent upon them and American money. And they want them to become empowered enough that they can fund their lives. They can fund all the organizational parts, the school and everything locally. And they can do it. In time, they, they can do it locally yeah how's that strike how's that strike you does that does that sound like almost an answer to what you're looking for yeah i mean it's 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 i just again i'm a naturally judgmental person and so you're you're a critical thinker i i just i immediately go like why doesn't everybody feel this way (laughs) you know like (laughs) like i get that's what i'm looking for but why doesn't everybody else looking for this because it's so clear yeah (laughs) right yeah well and their conclusion was, and I'm still on the journey of trying to figure out what I think about it, quite honestly, and you'd think I would know by now, but their conclusion was there's too much traditional church structure that gets in the way of being and doing what we need to do. So we're just going to go to a place where nobody's going to tell us what to do, and we're just going to do what Jesus tells us to do. <laughs> and that's what they did. Yeah. So God bless them. They're do, they're doing great work. I mean, it's inspiring. If you ever want to go to Guatemala and see an awesome ministry, plus, plus, I don't know if you've ever been to Guatemala. Guatemala I mean, is a fantastic tourist place. Uh, I when when I first went to meet them, we took an extra day and went down to the coast. And I'm a saltwater fisher nut. I like doing that. And there's the best place to catch uh, sailfish there in the world right now. You just load up on sailfish all day. And there's some neat mountain village stuff that is just, it's just gorgeous, uh, the country. So if you ever want to go take your wife or take some friends and see some great ministry and do some fun tourism, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, when's the best time of the year to go? Always. So where they live, they live in these hills up outside of Guatemala City. You can look down and see the city from where they are. Where they are, it's called the Eternal Spring. And it feels like you're in the Colorado Rockies. In the fall or in the spring, it's it runs about 72 degrees all the time. And it rains frequently, but it's a very pleasant rain, and you just almost always wear, like, 
like a pullover. And so I, I wear a pullover in shorts a lot of times when I'm there, and it's just perfect. And he just... It's so refreshing, especially having been in this Dallas heat. You know, I go down there and I'm like, I told these guys, I said, man, the gig is up. Everybody thinks you're down here suffering for Jesus. The fact is, you're living in one of the most beautiful places in the world. You know, they're like, yeah, yeah, don't tell everybody. <laughs> but you can then you here get, you are on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Here I, here I am blowing it. Here I am blowing it. From, they're going to they're gonna get calls from, dude, I saw this dude, man. He, he let the cat out of the bag on you guys. Uh, man, uh, do you ever get amazed that some people got their nonprofit status <laughs> how they got it like yeah like sure. when i see like sure. uh yeah no. scientology it's like wait yeah, y'all yeah, don't pay yeah. taxes <laughs> yeah yeah you know well there's abuse of everything right and there is there, some people do abuse the nonprofit concept that's for sure so as a pastor for 30 years tell me uh some of your funniest moments <laughs> <laughs> funniest moments oh my gosh i don't uh, how big was the church? We we were uh, kind of at our height of uh, of the ministry. Our weekend attendance was about fifteen hundred. So you know, by Dallas standards, not a big church. By New Mexico standards and the city we were in, pretty good, pretty good size. Um, funniest moments. I, gosh, I, I to me one of the most shocking moments was. A guy called me up and said, there's a guy in your church, and he's having an affair with my wife, and I'm going to kill him. And unless he comes and meets with me and you right now. And they both lived at the same country club together. He goes, next time I see you on the golf course, I will kill him. And I, I want you to call him because he felt like he didn't go to my church, but the guy who was having the affair with his wife came to my church and was kind of putting on the big show that I'm Joe, great Christian, right? And and so I didn't know what to do with it. Finally, I was like, well, I'll call him. And I called him up and I said, hey, uh, so-and-so's here, and here's what he's saying, and he would like – he really wants you to come. And, man, he's worked up. I'm afraid he's going to hurt you. Or And so my friend goes, uh, I'll be right there. So – now I got these two guys in front of me and this guy is telling the guy, these are all the things I know you're doing. And my friend hears it all. And he goes, no, that's not true. Not, we're not doing that. We're, we're not in an affair. We, we haven't done any of that. And, uh, so he said his piece and I just let the silence sit there for a minute. And I said, well, <laughs> one of you is lying. So either this guy over here is lying because He's just trying to ruin your life or you're lying. And I said, I don't know which one of you is. And I just let the silence kind of sit there a while. And finally the guy goes, yeah, he's right. I've been doing it. And, and finally, you know, and so as they talk it out, the guy over here goes, man, I'm sorry. I will cut it off. I promise you I will cut it off now, and I, I apologize to you, and I apologize to God, and I confess it, and it was totally wrong, and basically said everything you would want him to say, and, and he, he did actually cut it off, um, but I just thought, those guys left my <laughs> office, and I'm just sitting there going, <laughs> dude. This is like a this is like a soap opera, man. What it's crazy. So, um, wow. I I had one guy come into my office one day, and this is horrible. It's not funny, but in some ways, it's kind of funny. And 
he came to my office. He wanted counseling. So he's sitting across the desk from me and, uh, uh, in, in a chair and he's telling me about the trouble he's having with his wife. And in the middle of the night while he was sleeping, his wife began to stab him. And, uh, and that was very traumatic to him. And so I had remembered back to my counseling class in seminary, how you are to list with, listen with empathy and, and you kind of repeat back to them and you, you try to get into the feelings with them a little bit. And I said, well, you must have really felt betrayed. And when I said that, the guy just erupted into crying, sobbing, just <laughs> sobbing, sobbing, <laughs> sobbing. I've never seen anything like it. And he fell over on the ground and I'm behind my desk and I can't even see him anymore. He's on the ground on the other side of my desk. And the problem was we were getting at the end of the hour and I had another meeting I had to get to. And this guy is on the ground rolling around and just sobbing his eyes out. And I never felt so weird in my life. I'm over there and like, <laughs> dude, did I ever, did I ever pull a trigger or something on this guy? So I go around, I kneel down and I, I I'm patting him on the back, you know, and it, it's going to be okay. And all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, I got to get to this meeting. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I graciously start wrapping this up? And I said, man, look, look, buddy, I, I really hate to say this, but I, I'm going to have to get to a meeting. And he stopped immediately. I mean, shut it off immediately. And he said, he goes, Oh, Okay. And he got up and he, he totally straight face. He just walks out of my office. Don't even say goodbye. He just stands up stoically and just walks out of my office. And that's another moment. I'm just sitting there like, what is this universe? What is this universe that I have entered here? This is like, this is the twilight zone, man. Yeah. Being, uh, the counseling part of being a pastor is <laughs> Which, the thing is if you're a mega church pastor, you get to avoid that. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> yep. But if you're an actual pastor of like a smaller church, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're the counselor it's, too. It's part of the gig. It's part of the, it's part of the gig. Well, and, and, it, and, and, and I, and I made a rule that I didn't counsel women, but every now and then a woman slipped through the, the gal out front that was supposed to be the gatekeeper. And man, sometimes when they would come through, you just be like, Oh Lord. Uh, this is weird. This is just getting too weird. And I should, we should have never let them through the door because they have crazy motives. And that was weird. Yeah. I've, I've heard that from a, several pastors, friends that have, have said like, oh, dude. that like they're, I don't want to throw shade to anybody. I'm just repeating the stories I've heard, but essentially that, uh, some women are turned on by, intellectual like how intellectual you are <laughs> or, or sometimes just the power position <laughs> and that like they would come in there for counseling mm -hmm. and uh within like 20 minutes the woman would be like flirting or like undressing herself yeah or yeah I never, I never had the undressing but i have been in really uncomfortable like i'm like dude this okay this is over and we're doing something else now you know so but i did get to the point where i did have other counselors on staff and we just had a rule you know the gals go counsel with the gals yeah and the guys counsel with the guys and so we we were able to get to that point which was good it was a relief yeah, that's kind of always my thing is like I hate co-ed Bible studies uh, because it's like, uh, let me tell you who's not going to open up about his porn addiction. And, you know, like. <laughs> no, there's a, that, actually, there's a lot to be said by that because we did a lot of men's ministries and, and, and also women's ministries. And we, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's just so many issues of spiritual development that are unique to guys and guys cannot say it in mixed company. Right. Yeah. And it's like clearly Katie. 
who's a little overweight, really <laughs> lights Brian, who's got an eight pack, and is trying to sound very spiritual right now, so Brian lights her. <laughs> and then, like, uh, this is a... Are you talking about singles ministry? Are, are <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You're taking it back in singles ministry yeah. again. Yeah. This is, that's, that's what well, I helped hey, out of. That's what it's a part let, of. Let's be honest. Singles <laughs> ministry is, is a religious version of the dating game, all right? Everybody's there trying to get a, find the date and uh, find a spouse, and, and actually, that's okay. I mean... <laughs> Well, I know a lot of great people that found their spouse in church, I, uh, in, in church but uh, I went to a, so I was, there was like a big church I really liked and they had a little campus location closer to my house, much smaller, like 150 members. And I go there and like, I'm like, Hey, you know, love to get plugged into a Bible study, ideally a men's Bible study. If there's anybody, I'll lead it. That's fine. Um, and, and I love, I love when people try to discourage you from doing things. And the guy's like, well, I mean, you're not even a member here yet. <laughs> like, yeah. That's our first thing. It's yeah. not like, oh, you want to share yeah. the gospel with other men, you right. know? Right, 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 right. <laughs> or how about we do this together, you know? Yeah. But yeah. anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so there's this like co-ed Bible study, and I get invited to it, and I go, and there's like uh, 27 women there and three guys, <laughs> and two guys have girlfriends, and I'm like, okay, cool. Let me see you in this whole room. Well, this is not going to be fun. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, uh, some a joke I always make if there's anybody younger than me or somebody who's single who's in one of those ministries, uh, and because and, I've seen it happen a hundred times, and you'll know this one. I genuinely like meeting people and genuinely like getting to know people. So when I and I didn't, I grew up in a church, but was uh, gave my life to Jesus when I was twelve, but really saved when I was eighteen. And so I would just meet nice people in the ministry and invite them to coffee. <laughs> now. Keep in mind, these aren't people that I guess were invited to coffee a lot. So mm-hmm. the word got around that I asked out everybody at the church. <laughs> but in my mind, I was just inviting people to coffee to like get to know them. Uh, and so the the joke I, I made uh, to my wife the other night, I was like, if there was somebody I wanted to get with on Instagram, I had to phrase it as, hey, what's everybody's Instagram? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that that person didn't think that I was following them on Instagram because I wanted to yeah. date them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That you were stalking. So the kiss of death for us always on, on singles ministry was that a lot of times the singles ministry was be led, was be led, uh, led by a, a lay leader. And so the kiss of death is when the lay leader started dating somebody in the singles ministry. <laughs> and then they got engaged. And then it, everybody's like, oh, this is going to totally screw up the singles ministry because they're going to be married. And they do get married. And then they don't care about singles ministry anymore because <laughs> it was their dating game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so funny. So there was uh, a discipleship pastor uh, that certain people put on a pedestal and uh, – I I just was raised not to put people on pedestals, so I never put this guy on a pedestal. <laughs> uh, and so there was, like, the guys he discipled, and then his wife discipled the women, and then they always set couples up. Um, and it was just so funny to watch that. Like, everybody he discipled, everybody eventually ended up married and then divorced two years later. Oh, um, no. Oh, no. Yeah, that's the bad side. Yeah, uh, oh, or no. a year later. Um, and I just remember, like, always making jokes about it. Uh, to be like, yeah, like that's not like this is clearly like couples favorites, and they played this mismatch game, and <laughs> it's just weird. What my wife and I met on Bumble. Uh, that's how I preferred it. Yeah, I didn't want uh, you know, because that's the the problem with with the church is like if you're involved in ministry, which I wanted to be, mm-hmm. and you meet somebody in that ministry, and then it doesn't work out. 
then who leaves somebody leaves the church or somebody's very heartbroken or so does it be around you or you know and so i just like kind of made a commit to myself like i'm just gonna go so you were you were in uh, nashville and yeah. you met through bumble yeah yeah so was it was it like electricity on the first date did you kind of did you kind of <laughs> feel like well this could be the one no it's so funny uh i thought she hated me um it was just like the thing is i don't like silence and there was a lot i thought there was a ton of awkward silence in her head there was no awkward silence okay um, don't tell me your wife's an introvert uh not really not okay. really yeah okay um and so yeah I, I don't know uh anyway our first date was like good but i just didn't, didn't, didn't think she was into me she just didn't appear to be into me uh and then she sent me a really sweet text message after and i was like okay maybe you know maybe we'll do this again and then I think on like the third date, this is crazy. Like that's first date. But then third date, I was like, Hey, I'm going to marry you. Um, and she was like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, something happened between the first and the third. No, I mean, there was just, uh, all of a sudden, I don't, I don't know what it was. I just like kind of just instantly, uh, had this very, very, very strong affection for her. Um, and I was like, yeah, this is, this is my person. Yeah. Nice. Uh, that's amazing how many of our friends have met through uh, online, and uh, it turned into love, and they were they were great Christian people, and they realized they had the same values, and it worked out great. So, yeah, and I was always very uh, you know transparent about my thoughts. Like our, our first date, we talked about uh, religion and um, and politics, and um, my wife isn't strong in any of those things or wasn't um now she's <laughs> much stronger into religion but at the time wasn't you know uh i just said like so what happens when we die that's how because I, I didn't like stay like I, I was like we'll just see where this goes um and so she gave me like a pretty lukewarm answer and i was like okay you know whatever but then i realized like you know she was a professional ballroom dancer um and so she didn't want to be like offensive if really? i wasn't a christian she's and- a professional ballroom <laughs> dancer yeah my wife makes fun of me because i watch ballroom dancing. <laughs> she makes fun of me because i watch ballroom dancing and i watch uh like like the the kennel club dog shows on tv she thinks i'm totally weird because i'll sit there and watch those so according to my wife and she's not lying either because this i'm the only person she's ever met who has had no interest in dancing well there you go so the vast majority of guys like the vast majority of guys have at least some interest in dancing apparently wow yeah, who'd have thought? Not me. I've never, you know, yeah. I, I, I would take maybe a little country line dancing, but, uh, you know, that's about it. I love doing tricks, so uh, I don't know anything, but I know how to do tricks, and so we go to weddings and just light it on fire. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm a big one-upper, yeah. you know, look at me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so to go to a wedding and, like, you know, twirl my wife 41 times across the dance floor is, like, the best feeling. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, that, 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 you're, you're, you're definitely on fire at a wedding, man. Get out there and strut your stuff, man. Have her, have her teach you the moves. I had a, uh, we went to a wedding. And uh, the following, that was, you know, on a Saturday, Monday, I have a Zoom call with a guy that I know from the, uh, I was introduced by the guy whose wedding I was at. And uh, we're on Zoom, but we don't have cameras on. And then, or yeah, we do have cameras on. Uh, I guess he just didn't recognize me or whatever the case is. You know, I'm, I'm not in a suit. So, and we're just talking and I was like, yeah, how was your, how was your weekend? Um, and he's like, it was really good. I went to a wedding. Um, you already know what's going <laughs> And I was like, "Oh, nice. Um, me too, me too." And he was like, "Oh, you're at you're at Damon, yeah, Damon." Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, yeah." And he was like, 
wait, y'all were the couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was like, yeah, you know, my, my wife and I decided not to dance after seeing you yeah. guys. And yeah, I was like, like, oh, man, that was feel exactly. terrible. <laughs> exactly. What a buzzkill. Way, way to go. Way to go. <laughs> okay. So with your dad being a pastor, mm-hmm. was it expected that you become a pastor too? Or were you? did you really feel called that that was like your next step? Um, because I hear pastors all the time who's yeah, dad around and the guy was yeah. called, and I'm like, well, were you or was it just all you were around? Yeah. Like, if my son becomes a businessman, yeah. I'm not going to be too shocked by it, right? Um, yeah, for me, it's a little bit of a sticky question because my dad clearly, definitely wanted me to pastor. Uh, that he was super thrilled uh, to see me pastoring and to do, to do well in pastoring. Um. I don't feel like pastoring is my highest gift and calling. I feel like God did lead me into pastoring for a season of my life. I feel like my highest calling is this kind of work. Uh, I wish I would have been able to do this kind of work early in my life, but actually it took the course of my life to get my heart and my head around this kind of work. So honestly, it's a bit of a mystery to me. Um, I felt pressure at certain times that I was doing it because my dad wanted me to, but very clearly when I was 14, I knew God was calling me to something. And I assumed it was the pastorate. But I look back on it now, and my life has been weird because I've always had this intersection between ministry and economics, ministry and business. Um, I believe very much in the righteousness of business done properly. And business funds every good thing. It funds the church. It funds the government. It funds families. Business is the engine of the economy. And I believe that there's biblical evidence that that God is pleased with his people who do business properly. So I've always had that that intersection uh, of the two, and I've always had an interesting impact on business owners. Um, a lot of guys really expanded their operations and their business because of the things that we challenged them to do and ways to think. So, yeah, um, I don't think that I am really that good of a pastor. I think I'm a pretty good thought leader, uh, and the things and, and the areas where I kind of specialize, I, I feel like God's using me to have special impact with a certain group of people, and that's kind of my calling. So I don't, I don't know if that's a very good answer or not, but that's that's honestly that's where I'm at. When you look at scaling this, do you start to bring in entrepreneurs to teach this as like their ministry? Like, because like if you ask me, Nathan, we go to wherever and teach this for you know four times a year, three times a year. I wouldn't heartbeat, but yeah, I know this like the back of my hand. I love this kind of stuff, whatever. Is that eventual goal or is it train your own people? They go out there or is it, you know, cause eventually like, cause I would pay my own uh, way uh, and do uh, all the uh, things. Uh, I and, don't know the difference. I only see it one way. I want to get as many people trained who for any reason will go and train it. So we have some people that we train and like, for example, for you and you feel like, well, I'll self fund and I'll go to the country and plug me in, baby. Plug me in, coach. I'll play. And then you feel like, I love it. I like I love teaching it. I, I can give the good examples, and I can handle it. Uh, so it would be fulfilling for you to do it. And and you could self-fund. That's great. Um, and then I have uh, other people that are in these developing countries, and some of them use it as a business. They will go into a community, and they will offer an economic uh, empowerment course. They don't charge a lot. 
But if they have 10 people, 12 people show up and they just pay even a, 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 a fairly moderate fee, that person, it's worth that person's time as an income source for them to teach those people that. There are others that do it even as a ministry in these in these places. They don't charge. They either teach it through their church. Some of them are evangelists, and they will go into a brand-new community, and they start teaching this first. And that's how they start meeting people, and, the, and they start learning more about Christ through the economic models, and they start teaching the, uh, sharing the gospel with them, and it becomes an outreach method for them. So the answer is to scale we haven't got to get as many people on board teaching it in whatever way they, they feel called to do it. And right now, how do you educate them to teach it? Uh, we, we, we put them through a training course. Online or in person? or uh, we do, Right now we do it in person, but we are ramping up to get all of our stuff online also. Yeah. I had a question and I forgot it, so i got to think about it. Okay. <laughs> it's, quite all, it's, quite all, it's quite all right. But, you know... The, the scale question is that, you know, you're trying to create a movement, so you you got to find the bottlenecks. And obviously, the bo- I can't travel around the world and teach everybody in person. That's a huge bottleneck. And, and, and three or four people can't do it. We have to make it multiply where we train as many other trainers as we can. One of the Guatemala groups that I worked with two weeks ago, <clears throat> when we got done with the day of introductory training with them, they said, we want you to come back. We're going to do a conference. We're going to get as many Christians together, and you're going to do your normal training of the core course, and then we want to take a second day, and we want you to train 50, 50 certified trainers. I was like, yes, <laughs> that's what we'll do. Because now, I, now, not now, but when we get that done, God willing, if there are 50 certified trainers, I've got 50 certified trainers in Spanish. And I can start marching them down through Central America. To, Belize is over next door. Nicaragua is even poorer. El Salvador is even poorer. Uh, and there, we've got people in those countries now who hear what we're doing in, in, in Guatemala. They're like, how fast can you get them here? Um, so, yeah. Same thing's happening in Kenya. Next time I go back, we will concentrate totally on training trainers and try to create that multiplication because the, the neighboring countries of Zam, uh, 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 Tanzania, Tanzania, further down in Malawi, over in Uganda, the guys that I hang out with, the Okellos, they're sitting there posting on Facebook. Oh, we got all these people. We're doing this economic <laughs> training, and 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 one of the Okello guys, he now owns eight businesses and eight properties. Yeah, <laughs> ten years ago, he didn't own jack. He didn't even own his own house. Now he owns his own house. He he owns a, a, a three-story apartment building that he had built. He got the bank loan against his van, and he built a three-story block apartment building, five, five across, three high. You wouldn't believe all the stuff he's into, and, and he's a ministry leader. So this is what I was going to ask. Oh, wait, wait. So my story was, so we'd be in training events, and he would have his cell phone. So he's sitting there posting on Facebook <laughs> all that we're doing, and his phone is blowing up with people in Tanzania and Uganda going, <laughs> get Pastor John over here. We want Pastor John. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's it's fun to watch it spread. So with uh, Gen Z thinking that socialism is the way. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Do you eventually have to start teaching this in the U.S.? <laughs> we do teach it in the U.S. We're, we're developing school curriculum, so we're going to be moving it into uh, Christian schools, into homeschoolers, 
homeschoolers get inoculated pretty good, but this will give them even more uh, ammo. Uh, we teach it in churches. Um, so, yeah, we – we and we get that question everywhere we go. Uh, when I'm meeting with donors and we're talking about what we're doing about the world, we're like, yeah, but what about my stupid kids? How can you help my stupid <laughs> kids? You know, I'm like, okay, here's what we're – what we have in the works because it, it is a problem. Our culture is going to pot on this problem. That The socialism – cancer is growing and it's it's polar opposite of this yeah it's you know if if you want people to not be successful then it's the way yeah and if you want (laughs) and if you want tyranny (laughs) which is eventually going to shut down christianity yeah keep doing that like uh if you wake up in the morning and go kim jong-un that dude's doing it right yeah like (laughs) yeah hello well (laughs) yeah 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 um and you know the thing is that people they assume that like uh i don't know there's just this kind of this weird thing that's like um they want to victimize success yeah. You know, that's just a common thing that's yeah. like we want to ventimize success. Yeah, it's the 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 let me let me show you another picture that's a real powerful picture and and it's the explanation of the zero sum fallacy. And um so a lot of people believe the zero sum fallacy and what they believe is Mike. that that dark gray circle represents all the wealth of the world and all there ever will be. And see how it's divided up like a pie. Some people have a big piece of the pie, and the people some have small, some have so small you can barely even see it. So the, I would say more people than not believe the zero sum fallacy. What they believe is that's all the money in the world, and I don't have any. So how am I going to get my money? And their answer is, well, since this is where it is, I have to figure <laughs> out how I get it from somebody in here. Yeah. I got to take it from them. So their their mentality is we're competing against each other over a pie that is not increasing. So politicians, they abuse this all the time. <laughs> the media abuses this all the time. When, yeah. when they say, we're the wealthiest country in the world. Every, there should be nobody in poverty. What they're saying is, oh, you got your money over here. We're going to redistribute it to the people over here that don't have it. So this this is this is the fallacy of socialism. This is all there is. So the problem is the distribution of wealth. The problem is not the distribution of wealth. The problem is the creation of wealth. And all studies show that if you were to redistribute the wealth, it would be under 20 years before it's all back to where it was. And that for multiple <laughs> reasons. So the, here's the truth. The economy is constantly growing, and it is growing when people are creating products like farm products like construction like businesses like medicine like all these solutions the 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 economy is constantly growing so you can mentally live in envy and mentally live in the gray and constantly worry about what other people have and it's covetousness it is envy and i'm telling you envy is a dark dark motive the people who will hurt you the most in this life are driven by envy. Satan's initial sin against God is he envied God. It is a dark, dark thing. And that is what's being leveraged by these politicians and the media and this whole ignorant, forgive the French, BS that this next generation is buying on the socialist model when the reality is you need to mentally live out here. And when you live out here, what you do is righteous ambition. 
Righteous ambition is when you are focused on, I am ambitious for what I will create. So, I mean, I can tell, I can tell you've got a vision. You've got a direction you want to go. There's a reason you're doing podcasts. There's a reason why you focus on business. There's a reason why you're doing it because you, you have a vision. This is what I'm trying to grow. This is what I'm trying to create. That's not envy. That's not greed. That's a righteous ambition. And you're like, I'm focused on what I'm trying to create. And yes, there will be a dollar value to that. And I don't apologize for that because <laughs> there's no reason to apologize for it. Because guess what? We're going to create it. So that's not greed. And in itself, that is not materialism. Materialism is going to be, well, where's your heart going to be and what you do with it all? But but the point is, when you're living out here, you've got no time to worry about what other people have. In fact, if there's a bunch of rich people in here, that's good for you because it gives you a really great customer for whatever you're going to create with your life. So I'm trying to get a million people out of poverty. I'm doing it through the nonprofit model. I hope you're a rich business guy. Because I'm going to sit down in your living room and say, God bless you for your wealth. This is what I'm doing. Could you write me a check? <laughs> so the more of you that are in the world, the better for me because I'm creating something out here. It's in the nonprofit world, but it's create, we're creating value. It would be the same if we were doing it in business. You're, that's my customer base, and I'm, and I'm on the creation model. Yeah. I mean, I get it. It's, I, have this time all the, I have this talk all the time with uh, several of my employees about like if you could just like I, one of my employees i talked you know somebody directly reports to me right and today he goes uh he goes oh by the way it turns out one of my friends started this company that does like payment processing in the gun industry and i go you know we've built more websites in the gun industry than any company in existence and one of our leading products is something we're called Become Cancel Proof, where essentially we're saying, like, hey, if you're worried about being canceled, uh, we've put together the systems and the processes to prevent that from happening. And um, it's like, why wouldn't you tell me this six months ago? <laughs> like, if you're wondering why you make less money, it's because you do things like this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're not creating value. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 see, when people have a mentality of creating value, even if they're an employee – the second he met that guy, he would go, oh, man, you could help our company a lot, I bet. And he'd make an intro. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be in that mindset. Yeah, yeah, So that's yeah. what I'm doing. You know, all the time, yeah. like, um, the whole time I sit here, I think, okay, who are the three people I can introduce them to that can be donors, that can be helpful, that can be trainers like me? Yeah. 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 No, because you're, you're, you're thinking of how do I create value? How do I create value? Yeah. Because yeah. I know you work with other entrepreneurs. So I'm like, uh, cool, if I bring you other entrepreneurs <clears throat> and eventually you know what I do and you know how I work, yeah. you'll introduce me to one of your donors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you'll say, hey, here's Nathan. He's another donor. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Maybe I'm just selfish. Maybe I'll donate because I'm like, well, it puts me in the list of donors and then I meet other donors. Yeah, you know, some people <laughs> do that and some people do that to build their network base. But my feeling is, so what? I mean, it's if it's a business strategy, it's a business strategy. It's not an ethical, it's not illegal, and it's certainly not unrighteous. It's like, well, this was a, it's the reason you join a country club, so might as well support something you like. And it's the reason some people join a church because that's a that's a poor man's country club. That's been that's been used for ages. But yeah, no, you're right. Some people do do get into the donor mix because what they find is guess what there's a certain class of people that do that and i yeah. want to hang with those people exactly like you meet with like that's the whole um whole goal of like hey you know why we do this we meet other people that do this yeah because typically they're like us <laughs> well it's like i was on a zoom this morning with a guy 
uh, in Denver, who's one of our key donors, and he's getting ready to sell a business for three hundred billion dollars. I mean, million dollars, not billion. Sorry, three hundred million dollars. Oh, just three hundred million. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big business. It's the second one that he's built up and sold. He told me he goes, my goal in life is to eventually build up a one billion dollar business, and he's got a business model of how he does it. And uh, guess what? Uh, he's a philanthropist. He loves what we do, and he loves networking with other value creators. I mean, he loves that concept of creating value. And I, I had influence on his life early in his life. And he's like, dude, change my life. My my most set, like, uh, I'm trying to think of the words. How do I was our biggest client, the CEO of the company of our biggest client, also refers more people than all our clients. Yeah, so that's right. That's like the eighty twenty principle. Or, <laughs> yeah, it, there's, there's. I, I wish I would have brought it. I've got this great book where this guy breaks down the eighty principle, and he says, not only is it the eighty twenty principle, but of the twenty percent of the people who do eighty percent of your business, even another eighty percent of them are even the most powerful of that group. So it gets down to even a tighter group. Yeah, that are really your difference makers. <laughs> it's true, and it's so. His thing is like he runs the. He's my biggest client. Yeah. And he also so, refers me more than anybody else. So you better take care of him. And when the <laughs> phone rings and it's him, guess what? You answer it. <laughs> so if we look over the next 10, 20 years, mm-hmm. is this where you're at? Are you at 80 years old? Are you still teaching this and running this? Um, yeah, I'm 61. Uh, so here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking by the time I'm 75... I want to transition to totally become a writer and speaker and give directional leadership. I don't want any hands-on. Uh, I don't want any hands-on management of the organization. I want to build up enough of a core staff of competent people they could take over the the operation of it, and uh, us keep, just keep that process of scaling, scaling, scaling. Um, I I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but I'm going to say it anyway. I've had a desire for a long time to create a wealth management business and um, work with a couple of others who work in that business. And I would like to, uh, at some point along the way, launch a wealth management business and um, have that going. But even by 75, I don't want to be doing management of it. I would just be doing more of PR and getting the word out with key people that, you know, they want to help with their money and their management. So, um but yeah, um, I'd, I, I'd like to be out from under the organizational weight, but I still will love to read and write and be influential. That sounds awesome. Well, thank you. I And, and go catch more sailfish in Guatemala and all up and down Central America. I love that too. My, uh, I found out from my wife that my dad... <laughs> is apparently working on a documentary. My dad's not done any of this my whole life. I don't know why he didn't tell me. Okay. That follows, uh, it's the story of how uh, these guys graduated like college in Kenya and they were each given $10 bills, which is the most money they'd ever had. And then they took that and bought like chickens and then it's all the ads. And like, and they essentially turned that tin into, you know, being very, very successful. And so he wants to do a documentary that follows that process oh, that's of giving cool. somebody. That's cool. Um, I haven't talked to him about it. <laughs> I didn't know about it. So your dad's been over there and working? Yeah, I guess. I don't, you know, it's so strange. I mean, he's apparently telling my wife this. I got to see this documentary. <laughs> yeah. He's a fair, like, 
he's apparently telling my wife this that he's like got a couple entrepreneurs that are gonna come speak and i was like wait <laughs> is your dad in nashville or where's your dad yeah my dad's in nashville what's your dad do i don't really i thought he was retired so i don't you know <laughs> well what did your dad do he was before? an it guy okay um Okay, and helped out with, uh, you know, always helped out with ministries. Worked at he was head of IT for a church. And, okay. Um, anyway, all these all these things. Um, but I was just thinking, like, wait, why am I not involved with this? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, dude, that's kind of down my. That's kind of yeah. that's kind of up my alley, man. <laughs> that's kind of what, what I. Uh, what's up? But anyway, that might be need, a good. You need connection. to host your dad on a podcast sometime. Find out what he's up to. I. Uh, I tried to, uh, we moved here, moved into a house, um, set up the studio. Uh, my dad came in, helped me. Um, and then we tried to do an episode. I just didn't like the quality. Like it just, uh, not everything was in yet. Table wasn't done yet. All the things. So anyway, I, I never did anything with it. Now that I have producer Pierre, you have to say producer Pierre. It isn't just answered by Pierre. Yeah, um, yeah. and, uh, and now I have this great space and everything. I would like to have my dad back and maybe, maybe dive into it. Uh, yeah. My, my dad and I, uh, you know, I guess we're very similar. So we just fight about everything. So yeah. maybe that's why yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. he doesn't involve me and I don't involve him. Right, I don't know. right, right, right. Yeah. No, <laughs> that, that happens sometimes. That's for sure. Uh, what do your kids do? Um, we have five kids. Uh, my first one got her college degree in communications and she married, uh, a fellow who is a chemical engineer and then he got his uh, law degree and he's an executive for an oil company here in uh, the Dallas area. And they have our first four grandkids. They're the only ones producing grandkids so far so that she's our favorite child. <laughs> the next one is my son, Will, and Will is a petroleum engineer and, uh, just now, um, close to his first anniversary of marriage, married a great gal. She's my, she is my, uh, graphic artist that does all our stuff. Uh, and, uh, so he's in the oil and gas industry. And then my next one is a son, uh, Gibson, and he's a mechanical engineer working for a mechanical engineer company here in uh, Dallas. And then my third one is a daughter. She has a degree in mechanical engineering, but she's, um, she is like a what's the word? She is she is a vivacious um persuader and not really sales, but she can go in in an executive system situation and sell the contract. That's the kind of gal she is. So she's worked for a number of companies, um, Hewlett Packard and uh, some local companies, some oil and gas companies, another company that she was had all the contracts with Toyota and she was killing it. And she would like to come work for us at some point. So anyway, that's kind of been her trajectory. Um, so that's that one. And then my last one is um, she's our adopted daughter. Her name is Mia. Got her when she was about three. And she has just started cosmetology school. And I think she has the entrepreneurial gene. I, I think at some point she's going to either own a salon or she's going to own a restaurant. She's just got that. She's got that. I want to be large and in charge type of thing. So anyway, that's that's where they are. Awesome. Yeah. As a new parent, give me a parenting tip. Just one. The parenting tip is this. <clears throat> you you're have a son? Yep. Okay. Sons go through something that daughters don't go through, and that is they're born of their mother, so they're born of the feminine and they basically identify with the feminine for the first part of their life. 
at some point his identity will transfer over to you and he will make the transfer to the masculine. Once he does that, you have a window from about that age till they're about 12 or 13 if you get that much in the current culture anymore. Those are your window years. And those are the years that he wants to be with you and his being with you to do fun stuff that both of you like to do is the best time for building your bond and uh, building uh, masculine uh, security in him. It also creates the foundation for his spiritual development. Uh, your your non-spiritual stuff that you do with him that's just fun and loving will build a really strong foundation for his spiritual journey and where that goes. It doesn't mean you don't talk to him about spiritual things, but it means that that just fun relational stuff is huge. My dad was a great at it. He, I had a phenomenal father. I mean, my childhood was awesome. Um, and I experienced that with my kids and, and girls are different. You have a window year with the girls and you have window years with boys. But since you had a boy that there's kind of a unique thing going on there. And was it, is it tough having five kids? Because it's something we want to have four. Yeah. And so that we've, we've kind of struggled with this idea. I don't know if we, I've struggled with this idea of like, well, how do I like give them all attention and raise them all well and show them I all, you know, like, <laughs> uh, I, I, I felt guilty when I was pastoring because I was always so tired and wiped out. I didn't feel like I gave them the energy that I could have and should have. But my wife says, no, that's not what our experience was. We, we felt like you were engaged a lot. I was always trying to be situationally aware of any time I could do anything recreationally with the kids and be engaged in their life. My wife is a very engaged mother. Uh, so that made it all very doable. Um, so it, for us, it worked really good. And then the, and then the late adoption, uh, that came in our life, that was just kind of a surprise. It was a God thing. And we saw this little girl running around at a, at a 4th of July pool party. And she was the, the daughter of a teenage girl unmarried who was uh, having uh, drug issues and just at times living in a car. The little girl was exposed to some abuse from boyfriends and stuff. And, we just felt God was prompting us to put the offer out. Would you be willing to list a doctor? And my wife's name is Greg. She is a woman. I promise you that, that her name is Greg. <laughs> and so Greg and I said, well, we feel like God is telling us to make the offer. And if she says yes, that's God saying do it. And if she says no, that's God saying don't do it. Well, she said yes. And we adopted her. So wow. That's how that happened. Dr. John Morgan, how do people connect with you, donate money, follow you, become your friend, so on and so forth? Peopleprosper.org is the website, and all of our contact and connection is on that. So that's the easiest way to do it. 